You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. That question actually just, I didn't even think of it, spontaneously reminded me of this time that I went to, uh, it wasn't Willie Taco, what's that place, uh, it was one of these taco joints, I can't remember, the special, it was probably a tipsy, yeah, tipsy taco, and there was a special, guys, and because uh, my favorite, it would be lobster, I'm a huge fan of the lobster uh, thing, and um, it's like that moment when you're feeling Mr. Spontaneous and just Mr. Like, I'm like serendipitous, I just say what comes to mind, I don't plan things. And they come to you, you order something, and the minute they walk away, you're like, I don't know if I should have ordered the lobster tacos. I knew better. We're not in Charleston, guys. We're in Greenville, South Carolina. I can't order lobster tacos, you idiot. I swear, from the moment this waitress put this thing down in front of me at this table, from the time that I started to eat it, middle of eating it, and finished eating it, it never stopped wiggling. Like, it was just kept on, like, like it was just not a good move, and I did not go to work the next day. Anyways, that's not even my illustration. So, um, so I'm going to read, actually, the passage for this morning out of Luke 11. Now, uh, you're usually uh, hearing the Lord's Prayer out of Matthew, like the ones that, you know, your pastor, youth pastor taught you how to pray. This is actually going to sound a little bit different, but it kind of has the same construct. And, uh, and as Jesus goes through this teaching in Luke 11 about prayer, it's one consecutive line of thought, okay? He's a master teacher. I remember he used to have this, like, uh, chart for seventh graders where you do the definition, the example, the non-example, and the illustration. You'd have kids do all that to really get a purview of what something is. He's killing it with this. So Luke 11, he's going to go through the prayer. He's going to give um, an example, a non-example, an illustration, and, and he's going to give us, I think, a really rich uh, understanding of prayer. But keep in mind, verse 3, give us today our daily bread, which is our, 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 uh, our linchpin verse that we're going for. Verse 1, one day, Luke 11, verse 1, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, it says, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, could you teach us how to pray? Man, if there's anything that seems like really matters in the mechanism of how you're doing your life, it's prayer. And, and we just want to know about how you do it. So he says, they, they say, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And uh, just as John taught, taught his disciples, you know, because every rabbi has a way to pray, and, and we just know we want your way. We want to know what your way is more than the other rabbis. So anyways, verse 2. And he says to them, this is how you do it. When you pray, keep it simple. Father, Okay, not Lord, General, okay, Master. Father, hallowed or holy is your name. Okay, uh, your kingdom come. Uh, and verse three, give us each day our daily bread. I love, um, uh, I can't remember, Tyler Stanton at Bridgetown Church, you know, one time said like, prayer is bigger than church, it's not even close. If you go to the edge of a deathbed in any hospital in any country in the world, people are praying. Like, you don't have to go to church to pray. And so what Jesus is speaking to us and to them is to say, there is a question when you're at the edge of that deathbed or somebody else's deathbed, and you're basically wondering, is there anyone out there? Is there anyone out there that cares? Is there any purpose to this? Is there anyone that listens to this? Is there anything? And he's saying, yes, there is. Not only is he bigger, he's better, and he's hallowed. He's set apart from this place. All the great things that you see down here, ice cream cones and little kids giggling, all that stuff, that is a creation that someone else made, and holiness is not scary and fiery, but set apart, and that guy made this place, and he runs it. So ask for him to run it. Ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And the thing that you want uh, and you need, it could be food, it could be a car, or it could be a friend. Uh, ask him for that too. Ask him for daily bread. Bring that need to him. Uh, like you were on the edge of your deathbed needing something because you're a human being, not a robot. You need stuff and ask him for it. Ask him for daily bread. Verse four, forgive us our sins uh, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us 
And he says, finally, lead us not into temptation. That's exactly what Taylor Peavy is going to be talking about in about two weeks, is delivering temptation. I want you to hear his testimony. It's really, really cool. Moving on, though, okay? Example, non-example, illustration, the whole thing. He goes all the way around the mountain. Verse 5, Jesus says to them, okay, so think about it. Say you had a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Uh, a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food for him. So a friend asks a friend for another friend for a loaf of bread. There you go, friend of a friend. Uh, and verse 7 says, And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed, and I can't get up and give you anything. Verse 8, and I tell you, that would be crazy, right? Think about this. Because uh, even though he would not usually just get up for no reason and give a person a, a, a loaf of bread because of friendship, yet because of, and this is an awesome word. I mean, I'm, I like words, right? So this is a great word, okay? Uh, not just because he's a friend, but because of shameless audacity. I mean, just somebody thought about that for a whole plane ride to think about um, what that word would mean, okay? So it's not just because you know him and you spend time with him and you have him in your iPhone context, but because of shameful audacity has been brought into, introduced into the relationship, surely he will get up and give you as much as you need. Verse 9, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for everyone who has received and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Verse 11, now which of you fathers, the non-example, uh, who are evil, the non-example fathers, which of you guys, even though you're evil, is going to give uh, a snake when your son asks for a fish? And which of you guys is going to give a scorpion when your son asks for an egg? None of y'all, right? So think about it. Even if you're that evil, verse 13, if you then are that evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, uh, I really meant to mention during worship, Kyra, I got my story from you today. Okay, so Kyra, <laughs> she's like, oh boy. Um, Kyra uh, and my dear wife and I have been married for 17 years. Some of my favorite things about Kyra, uh, we were at the store the other day, and Kyra, um, uh, she is, uh, she's watching the kids, and she knows uh, what the kids need and what the kids want. She can spot a library book, and you've been to the library. There's so many books, and they're all boring, and she can just pick that one off the shelf and she picks it, and it's about how to draw Charlie Brown characters. And if I would have picked in a sea of those things, I would have picked something so stupid, like Batman or whatever, and they wouldn't have liked it. But when, they, when she picks it, like she knows, she knows what to pick, okay? Um, another thing about Kyra that I've loved in our 17 years of marriage is she's just a team person. You ever just meet somebody who just wants to be on the team and like make team and like do the community thing? Like, I'm such a loner and an individualist and only child, and I just love that Kyra brings us together, that she's, she's adventurous and she... She wants to do things together and, and not apart. Kyra is fantastic with words, and she hears a lot from the Lord, which is a profound gift to have as a husband, because sometimes, you know, you have the Holy Spirit, and then you have Kyra, too. And uh, so they're both really great, and she, she has a way, and I should have written down more about some of these words that she'll use, but she'll pick the right word. She'll pick the right word. But of all the qualities that all of us love about our spouse and the qualities I love about Kyra, it's really the character that builds the relationship the most. It's really her faithfulness, her fortitude. And so the other day, I was looking for the word. I didn't come up with the right word, but she's not lawyering me, and so she's given me a safe place to just process. And the word that I was thinking about was, I was like, being a needy husband, you know, and you just want more of your wife's time. And the word that came out was like, jealous. I was like, I'm kind of jealous for your time. I like, we're really busy. We got a lot going on, and I just miss just being us sometimes, and I just want to spend time together, you know. And there's that moment when you just like, and you kind of like, you know, barf up that word. And it's awkward, and you're 40, and you shouldn't be saying words like jealous, but I'm just saying what I feel, okay? So I'm just out there. And Kyra could have said, you know, you're just being a baby. 
She could have said, well, if you did more stuff around the house, maybe we'd have more time to hang out, right? She could have said that, right? She could have said, she could have said, um, hey, I have needs too, and you should make it happen. You know, we should, you know, fight for connection and have more time. There's two, two, two sides to this phone call. But she said none of those things. She didn't call me a baby, and she didn't say you should work more around the house. And she didn't say I have needs too. She said, okay. She said, okay. And the studies show that really, you know, like the split divorces that happen in marriage, they don't happen because of big one fell swoop catastrophic events. The divorces and disconnection that happen in marriage happen moment by moment. Moments of invitation for either reception or rejection, where reception is met rather than rejection is what builds a marriage. And when rejection happens instead of reception, and all these little nickels and dimes that add up in the trust jar, when too much rejection happens, the straw on the camel breaks and the, and the marriage can't survive. It's the little tiny moments when somebody's speaking and just says, hey, look at that cool bird out there, and the person's on their phone. That's how it happens time and time again. And so the myth of the thing, like, like the uncommon wisdom, contrary to popular belief, is that it actually does hurt to ask. It actually does hurt to ask. You ever heard the saying, like, it doesn't hurt to ask? It does, though. It hurts to ask, because asking is that place at the edge of my control where I risk your reception or rejection, and I choose to risk it for the sake of intimacy instead of control anyways. Asking for the date hurts. Because if I'm really asking you and I'm not manipulating you or pushing you or bullying you, you can reject me and you can turn me down. You can meet my need or leave it there. Asking for more time if I'm a grandparent for the kids, to have more time with the grandkids, asking hurts. Because by coming to you with my need and with my bare bones, no strings, no barriers, no hooks, no hoops, request, you could turn me down. You could turn me down. Asking hurts because I could, I could come to you, you know, at work or whatever in my profession, ask you for a raise, and, and you could receive me or you could reject me. And that's, unfortunately, as a human being, where it lives. There is no intimacy without asking, and there's no asking without intimacy. And therefore, there's no asking without risk of rejection. And so here's the thing about being a human is that if we want any kind of connection or any kind of intimacy while we're down here on earth, we have to ask. We have to ask. If there is no asking, there is no intimacy because intimacy or asking is where intimacy lives. If you're afraid of me, if I can manipulate you or I can bully you or I will yell at you and I can force you to do something for me on my behalf to meet my need, then it's not going to, I might get my need met, but I'm not actually connecting with you in intimacy. Similarly, if you, um, if I have something over you, if I have money or power or respect and you're, and you're reaching towards me and I have leverage in that relationship, you might be able to meet my need, but you're not going to meet me in connection, in intimacy. And so intimacy is where the asking lives and asking is where the intimacy lives. So when Jesus actually teaches about asking for daily bread, he's harking back to, reminiscing to an old story in Exodus 16. You might remember it. It's the story of the people coming out of Egypt and for the very first time having to be tested by the character of God. God tests them in the desert over how they're going to eat. And the way that he provides, does anybody remember from Sunday school, is quail and manna, which basically means, what is it? The bread and the birds, you know, the sky bread and, 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 and the meat that they're supposed to eat, eat each day. And basically the test is this, I'm going to read it in a, in a second, is that if I go out on Monday or Tuesday and Wednesday and try to collect for the next day, the thing that I collect on Monday that is for Tuesday Bringing it back to the camp, Monday will be good to eat, but Tuesday will go spoiled. So it's Monday can't collect for Tuesday, Tuesday can't collect for Wednesday, Wednesday can't collect for Thursday, so on and so forth. And then on the Sabbath day, you're supposed to collect two times. So if you go out on Sunday to go collect bread, there's no bread for you, right? Because there's a test. There's a test. So let's listen to it real quick. This is what he's talking about when he says daily bread. Verse 15, when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it is. Moses said to them, it is the bread 
the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commands. Everyone gathers as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Verse 17, the Israelites did as they were told, and some gathered much and some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little also didn't have too little. But everyone gathered as much as they needed. When Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of this until morning. However, some of them tested the Lord rather than passing the test. Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. And guess what? They wake up and there's maggots full. So when you pay close attention to the test, if you really think about it, the test was never or not whether or not they're going to get fed. They're going to get fed. God has promised them and his word never returns void. The question is not if they're going to get fed. The question is if they're going to ask to be fed or not. Because I think the implication down here is that there is something worse than no bread. The thing that's worse than no bread is spoiled bread. A bread that's received not out of gratitude, but out of grumbling, and that actually consumes the bread. Two people could be consuming the same kind of bread, but actually consumes the bread thinking they feed themselves rather than God. And so the only thing worse than uh, not having bread is having spoiled bread, which is a life without intimacy with God. In God's mind, this is actually worse than having no food, is thinking that I have food that I feed myself with than rather knowing that God is feeding me with it, missing my opportunity to go close to him in the process. So this is what he's talking about, is that for our, for our day and age, for example, is, is it's not just not having a spouse that's the hardest thing, but believing that I get myself the spouse rather than God brings me the spouse. That would be the, the, a, a two drastically different interpretations from, what, from God's understanding of how we're, how we're living a life. Not that, that, that just whether I get healed or not, whether or not I believe that I healed myself, the doctor healed me, or God healed me, is a way different circumstance. Not whether I create reconciliation on my own, whether God creates reconciliation for me. So this is the point. When Jesus teaches us now here in the New Testament and teaches us to ask, what he means is ask. And, and, and so I think what we can sometimes do in the grappling of being a human being with disappointing circumstances is really take that word and reinterpret it to mean two things that it never meant. Number one, thinking when Jesus says to ask, that what he means is to demand things. Turn the music louder, pray for longer, shout more, quote more scriptures, and basically bend God's arm to ask enough times to practice a squeaky wheel theology that I get what I want because I demanded it of him. That's not what he said. He did not say to demand, he said to ask, to risk. What he also did not say is to diminish the desire, to lower the bar so much that prayer is just a means of meditation that God only changes the person. It doesn't move heaven. It doesn't move God's heart. And so really meditation and prayer is just me just like agreeing with the bad stuff around me and calling it good. He didn't say to do that. There's nothing in there that gives any Christian the right or license to walk through their life and never ask for anything as though God can actually do it. So we want to live in one of these two things, right? One of these two gutters because they're easier. They're easier than asking. I'd rather lower my expectation and diminish the desire so I can't be let down or I would rather bartered with God, bending his arm, turning the music louder to insist that my faith can bring uh, the source of my request. That's my faith and not the person of Jesus that brings the, my daily bread. And he says, you live in none of those things. If you, are, if you are a child of God, then you do not live in your diminishing of desire or the controlling of your desire, but in the simple asking by presenting yourself at the, at the precipice of risk and rejection to say, here's my need. Will you meet me or leave me? Here's my need. Will you meet me or leave me? This is, this is the teaching. This is the teaching that Jesus is saying. And so um, let's work through the rest of the passage again. I believe that the, the sections are basically built like this. 
Jesus describes prayer as a friend in need. He defines prayer as asking, seeking, and knocking, three different words. He distinguishes the difference between the relationship I have with Kyra and the relationship I have with the Father in the sense that the Father will never reject me, and then he directs us to pray. Okay, so let's move through the passage. So this is, this is the illustration. He gives you the whole hypothetical. Suppose you have a friend, right? And you go to him at midnight, and the friend says, uh, lend me three loaves of bread. Uh, a friend of mine is on a journey. Uh, he's come to me, and I have no food for him. And suppose one answers inside, don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children are already in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, he will give it to you because of shameless audacity. Okay, so here's what Jesus does. He says, how many contacts do you have in your iPhone? Someone the other day was like, man, you're a pastor. You probably have a billion. I don't know. You probably have more contacts than me. I have 1,200 contacts on my iPhone. Okay, 1,200. Is that a lot? I don't know. My iCloud is like, you know, slowing the internet down, I guess. So I have 1,200. I don't delete any of them. Okay? What Jesus is saying to this, I think, with this whole friendship and shameless audacity thing is, it is possible for you and I to have friends without friendship. Right? There, there are people on our Instagram roll, Likes, follows, subscribes, retweets. We have acquaintances. We have friends. That is a long list. But when it comes to who you're calling in the middle of the night, it's going to pick up the phone. That list gets short. Right? So it's possible to have time and trust without shameless audacity. And what he's saying, even in the horizontal sense, is I, say, I think he's saying, is that if you want to turn friendliness into friendship, you can't avoid introducing shameless audacity, or in Brene Brown's words, right, vulnerability. You can't come, to a, you can't come from the acquaintances that are on, on your 1,200 you know, roles on your, on your contacts without introducing some type of a shameless audacity where there is an actual risk for the person to meet you or leave you. They choose to meet you where intimacy can happen because there is no friendship without vulnerability. There's no way that I can, that I can connect with you unless we have some shared need that is met by your voluntary uh, decision. Right, so uh, this, is, this happens in no better time, at least in a guy's life, than when it comes time to move. Am I right, guys? If you are, have the means to move but don't have the means to pay movers, you're in a tough spot, okay? Because here's the truth. They don't want to help you move. They, you know, like, they don't care about your pizza. They don't want to come. It's too hot. It's July. I don't even want to be here. I love you. I'm coming up with reasons to get out of this, right? That's what's going on. I had a lot of great people, Matt Cochran and Kyle Walker and just different people that helped us move. We moved five miles down the road from this place on Woodruff Road and uh, awesome place in September that we moved to Windsor Creek. And so we moved there, and it, it, just, it just was a certain moment, and it was a certain setup in my life where Greg Stewart, who happened to be the realtor of, um, uh, for me and Kyra, I mean, you guys know Greg Stewart, great friend, good guy to know, reminds me of Jesus. And he helped me buy the house, let alone help move the house. He and his wife Elizabeth scheduled a babysitter and swapped out their date in the middle of the rain to haul and this is the bad part, because your mattress is like gross, right? And your stuff's not really packed. And every time you're like, I'm going to have my ducks in a row, and it's going to be super smooth, and everyone's going to love to help me move, because I'm so organized. And it never works out, because your stuff is a mess, and nothing fits in the thing. So Greg gets the babysitter. He and his wife, Elizabeth, move me down the street in his pickup truck, like basically by himself on this morning, or in this evening. And it's like raining, and I've got no camaraderie. I've got no bro time. I've got no pizza. I've got no way to pay him back, right? He simply meets the need. And I just cannot explain it to you like when you're shiny and bright and when you're new and you can offer somebody something and they respond to you, that is a wonderful feeling. But when you've got nothing to offer 
and you're embarrassed to what you have in the first place, and you present yourself with a need, and you don't even risk or bring any shameless audacity, and they meet you, there's something that's just divinely powerful about that moment. Like, I will never forget, not just the friend of Greg, but the friendship of Greg to meet me in my need when I was low. And so, so, so Jesus necessarily must be saying this in all this prayer stuff, right? Is that, is that prayer, like when Timothy, I love what Timothy said when he opened it up, like the difference between when Jesus says babbling and talking is not actually, you know, I think you can actually pray with great scripture passages. I think you can pray with clarity. I think we should all strive to have good corporate prayer where we speak in ways that other people are stirred in their faith. Like, I don't think it has to do with the length of the prayer, with the diction of the prayer, with the volume of the prayer. I think it has to do with the vulnerability of the prayer. When Jesus is saying, I want you to pray, Father, kingdom, bread, forgiveness, deliverance, temptation. When he's saying that, what he's really saying is, I want you to talk about the stuff that you really need to talk about and stop talking about the stuff that you think other people need you to talk about. So the prayer happens at the end of small group. Who needs prayer? Well, I think I'll pray for Uncle Larry and, man, his bum knee's not doing very good. We need to pray for traveling mercy. Like, what is it? What are we talking? What is a traveling mercy? Can somebody open up their dictionary? Where in the book of 2 Kings is the word traveling mercy in here? You need to talk about the fact that you're angry at your dad. That's what you need to talk about. And the reason why I'm giving you this is not because I'm giving you a speech that's going to get you entrance into heaven. It's because that's the stuff that you always need to talk about. So stop talking you know, about the weather. Don't talk to people about the weather, first of all, but don't pray for a good day at Six Flags. Like, don't waste your time doing that. It's not about how long you pray. It's not about how loud you pray. It's about how real you pray. Are you praying as yourself or are you praying as someone else? And that is the shameless audacity. It is not actually, the word is not actually about persistence and desperation. Those things are not the thing that moves God. It's the need. If I call you at three in the morning and I tell Cameron, you know, I'm scared. I'm at Walmart. It's three in the morning. I need you to come and get me. He's going to come and get me. I think he would. I think he's looking at me like he would. I think he would. <laughs> if my dad dies and I need a tux, I need a suit for the funeral. Are you going to turn me down if you're in my contacts? Because if human people, which are evil, respond to shameless audacity and vulnerability, how much do you think God is drawn to the heart of the vulnerable? To really pray what you need to pray. This is the topics that he's talking about, and it can come in all different you know, runs and renditions, but he's giving us an explanation of what's really underneath in the soul when we come and close our eyes before the Lord. So he goes on and he gives another example. Uh, or he doesn't give an example, he gives the definition. And so I think this is what Jesus would say is the definition of prayer. And verse nine, he says, so, okay, so this is what it looks like. Prayer is vulnerability with God. And so when you pray, this is what you're doing. You are, number one, asking. So as I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. A lot of us, we stop right there. And that's a lot where that whole vending machine prosperity gospel comes into play. Like, ask and receive. Let's throw out the rest of it. You can't just throw it out, right? There's a whole sentence. Let the guy finish his semicolon, right? Ask and it will be given to you. And seek and you will find it. Knock and the door will be open to you. That's a longer sentence than ask and receive. A little bit more nuance, a little more color. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, everyone who finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What I read in Jesus' uh, uh, description of prayer is that prayer is vulnerability, and it's not control. And what I read in his definition of prayer is that prayer is a process, not a formula. That every single person in this room is completely different, like fingerprints, like snowflakes. And every single one of us has different hang-ups and backgrounds and cultural contexts and different parents. And so all of us are praying. All of us are praying in different ways. And in our desire to try and scare up a, a formula... 
right? We missed what Jesus is actually saying. He's not saying do one and then two and then three and then everything works out. What he's saying is give yourself to a persistency continually, right? Engaging the Father with asking and seeking and knocking about the things that really matter. I think a lot of times when we read this thing, I, at least in my head, can get a bit of a Yoda, ver- Yoda voice in my head when I pull this verse in the context, like, ask and you will receive, receive and you will seek. You know, like, there is this code to be cracked that I think that if I can just ask the right way and just pray with the right words and just bend God's arm and ask the 99th time as opposed to the 98th time, that it will happen for me. But when you really look at the whole process, like, look at the story, right? The illustration, the Instagram picture, and then the, the explanation of it. What he's saying is, when you ask, what you're doing is, it's like you're asking like the guy asked. You are the, you're on the outside. This is the thing about prayer. If you know a person that thinks that they're an expert in prayer and they can just write a book on it because they have the formula, they don't know anything about prayer. Because what Jesus has just said to us about the posture of where we pray from is not knowing the answer. So I can't write a book about things I don't know the answer about. So I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not Yoda. I'm a learner. And I'm always asking. And I never stop asking. I'm asking for a friend for bread. Like, that has to be in the consideration. I'm ask, not asking for a Maserati. That's what he said. He said, asking for a friend who has bread. That's what he says is the picture. You have to take the whole sermon into context. I'm seeking. I actually don't knock on any of the other doors. I'm knocking on that one. And I can get attention from that one. I can get attention from that one. But I'm not knocking on those doors. I'm knocking on that door because I'm seeking that door. And I'm actually getting off of my couch and I'm actually knocking on it. I'm not just throwing up Hail Marys and hoping that it works out, right? So this process is not a formula. It is a process. I could tell you, right, sitting here, being married to Kyra for 17 years, that I know her way better than anybody else does. But I can also tell you with a straight face, I don't know her at all. Like, she's still a mystery to me. I don't know what she's doing. I don't know how she does what she does. I don't know what she's thinking. And you guys are lying if your husband and you think you know right, exactly what your wife wants in the first place. We're still babies, and we're always babies. This is what Jesus says. Hey, you want to know about prayer? This is what it's like, being on the outside, wondering what's on the other side. It's continually asking and seeking and knocking and working out with vulnerability, because here's what vulnerability is not. Vulnerability can mean a lot of things and look like a lot of things. Be different volumes. It could be different, quiet or spoken. Vulnerability is, you know, has, has context. But here's what it's not, right? Vulnerability is not control. And oftentimes what people say when they say they're trying to be vulnerable, what they're really saying is control. What they really want is to share all their deepest, darkest secrets, but get no feedback from you. <laughs> they want to share all the ugliness, but not do anything about it. They want to just demand the need. And if you give them any kind of response or feedback whatsoever, they don't want any of it. That's not vulnerability. That's control. That's manipulation. And that's not what God is calling us to. He's calling us to prayers and requests in the middle of the night, in the day, in the morning, in the afternoon. And sometimes they're answers with, answered with yes, and sometimes they're answered with maybe, or later, or no. And there is no, there is no circumventing of this, of this process because he is calling us to ask and seek and knock, right? To, to, to work out this, this process, which is, which is not formulaic in the end. So he lands it all, verse, verse 11. He says, so here's a non-example though. He says, which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, gives them a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit who asks him? So clearly, you know, if I keep calling Cameron at three in the morning and ask him to pick me up because I'm scared at Walmart, he's going to be like, look, can you shop somewhere else? You know what I mean? Like, that's enough. Stop asking, you know. Okay, and so at some level, what he's saying is there is a, a limitation 
of a contract there where Cameron's Cameron and I'm Oliver and we've got to go do our own business. But the way that I relate to Cameron is not the way that I relate to the father because with Cameron, he could reject me, but the father never does. The father always receives me. And here's why that's important. Here's why that's important. When he goes through that little analogy, he only gives two different pictures. He says, if a kid asks for, if a kid asks for uh, 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 a fish, okay, if a kid asks for the fish, the father's not going to give him a scorpion. And if the kid asks for an egg, or no, the fish, he's not going to give him a snake. If the kid asks for an egg, he's not going to give him a scorpion. You know why that's in there? You know why I think that's in there? It's because when you pray for healing and you get cancer, it feels like a scorpion. That's why he's telling you that. You know why he's telling you that? It's because when you pray for a baby and you get a miscarriage, you know what that feels like? It feels like a snake. It feels like that's not your father at all. So why does he have to teach you that? Because he knows that your circumstance and your reasoning and the way that you deal with human beings is going to teach you a bunch of stuff that you think is true about your father that is not true about your father. That God is always good and never bad. And bad is always bad. And God did not call us to call bad good or call God bad. That he is always telling us to wrestle with us and everything that we get has to get viewed and skewed through that lens that God does not reject me. He never rejects me. And anything that he is putting in my hand is good and only good. And he does not put bad things in my hand nor cause me to call bad things good. Cancer is not good. And that passage, will, that passage is, 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 is uh, desperately necessary for a person in prayer life because it will feel not good. And it will cause you to live in that tension, right? And so this is what Jesus ultimately teaches about this whole thing in prayer because this is the deal. What's, what's actually the daily bread? What is actually the daily bread? The daily bread is Jesus. The prayer for the spouse and the prayer for the house and the prayer for the depression and the prayer for, you know what all that is? You're praying for Jesus. And he's using language and alphabet that we can understand, that we can viscerally feel because, because we have no concept of who he is because we're always asking and seeking and knocking. And what his real prayer is, is not just to get the bread, that the bread wouldn't spoil because you would receive it without thanksgiving. That it would be good and fresh daily bread because you knew the bread came from a hand, not from your own wit or your own strength. John 6, stop grumbling. Remember that language? He's saying it to Israel and he's saying it to the Pharisees. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent them draws them to me. And I raise them up on the last day. It is written to the prophets. They will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who has come from God. Only he seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors... They drove cars and got houses and, and had kids and, and, and lived lives and got jobs and they ate manna in the wilderness, but they died. They died there because they ate spoiled bread because they had all the things that, that, that I fed them with, but they forgot to ask for it and therefore lived a life without intimacy. They lived a life that they actually believed they fed themselves rather than I fed them. And so they, they got the the manna bread, but they missed the Jesus bread, just like you are. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. That's the real need. The real need. The real need is not that we'll have good weather tomorrow, nor even is the real need that I need to get over being mad at one of my family members. The real need is I need Jesus. And he's using the weather and family members and this prayer moment that you might not get spoiled bread, 
that we might not get some bread in our hand and miss Jesus in our heart because that would be the greatest tragedy, right? And so, um, you know, everybody, you shouldn't agree with, everyone's, with anyone's theology 100%, right? So we're all in this big body of Christ together. And, and, and all of us, as Paul says, we all have different measures of faith. Um, you know, I, so uh, recently, you know, um, the, the Bethel Church senior pastor, his son Eric, like, moved here, and, you know, he's the pastor at a studio church, and I had wonderful coffees with him and all that kind of thing, and I'm hurting for him right now because his mom died. He just moved out here and started the church, and can you imagine you're 40-something years old and your mom dies? So Bill Johnson, who's the pastor at Bethel, many of us listen to the songs and have different, you know, connections and have seen different messages. He got up three days after his wife dies and gets up there and preaches about the privilege of praising through pain. Basically, the whole message was that Bill's talking about is that down here, we actually have an opportunity to sing songs through perseverance and pain that we will not get to sing in heaven, so we got to sing them now. There is pain in our heart right now that we're going to have to sing through today that we will not have the option to tomorrow. It'll cost us more, it'll be worth more, and so we need to sing when we're in pain most of all. And so, you know, everybody can have point fingers, what is that, Teddy Roosevelt? Like, everybody gets to, like, poopoo on people that aren't trying stuff. You say anything about any church you want to, right? I'll tell you what, about that ministry and Bill and those guys, as much as I know, they never stop asking, right? If, that's, if there's any of these churches like, that people point fingers at and all that kind of stuff, like, you can't, which you can't hold against them, they don't stop asking for stuff. Like, his wife died of cancer while they're praying for a cancer-free zone. And I'm, I, you know, I'm not against, I can't be against that. If I'm a Christian believer, I have to believe that God actually means ask when he says ask. Right? So I respect that. And more than that, more than that, I think that if any of us were watching, I'll read this little quote from his, from his sermon that, that he preached. But as I read this, I don't think anyone's watching this sermon and thinking, I don't want to be like that as a Christian when my wife dies. The thing I'm thinking is, whatever that dude is drinking, I want that. Whatever that guy is thinking about heaven and earth and his wife, I want that in my heart. I'm not sure about whatever it is that he got there to it, but I want Whatever spiritual deposit that he has, I want it. So this is what he says. He says, look, this is, God, this is the charismatic guy, right? This is the guy who's believing for signs and wonders. He says, he says to his church, three days after his wife Benny dies, the happy intercessor, God's not a vending machine, he says. He says that I get to put a quarter in and withdraw whatever I want. He chooses what he gives. But it is the wicked at heart that say, God didn't do what I wanted. He's a liar. May I never be found critiquing God when things don't go my way. May I not put demands on God and think it's my faith that moves. It's his grace that moves. It's not my faith. It says, the guy says, I don't have enough belief. I'm gonna need to borrow from your faith to get this prayer leveraged. It's not the faith that moves it. It's his grace. So when things don't go my way, I can't stand here and critique God. May I always be found having a heart ready to be critiqued by him. Is God my friend? Absolutely. But he's also my Lord, He's my friend, but he's my Lord first, and I'll never have the pain I'm feeling right now in eternity. So in this moment, it's a privilege to respond rightly to the Lord of my life with deeper trust and devotion. I will bow before the Lamb of the throne in awe and worship him forever, but never will I have to face, to face, face uh, this chance and do while I'm, what I'm doing right now in pain. So in this moment, I choose to do that. And when I said yes to Jesus, I gave my right to fully understand because he's in charge of my life. Is there anyone here that doesn't want that? And I think what, what Bill would say to us is that the test is not will he feed us. The test is will we ask him? 
Because the worst thing that you can move through is not actually to not receive the daily bread, but to think that you fed yourself. And so here's the premise. Here's the, here's the, what, the description and the definition and, and, and the distinguishment. And here's the, here's the direction from Jesus. You've got to ask. Marriages start dying when you stop asking. You know what you don't want in your house? A silent marriage. You don't want people that have given up asking. You don't want people that have just given up that the other person is actually going to meet their need and not leave it. You don't want people that are invulnerable in their marriage because, because the minute that people stop asking is the minute the relationship dies. And so this is, I think, what Bill would tell us. It's like, look, like I've been healed of like kidney uh, uh, ailments that would have cut my life short 10 and 20 years. Like I've been healed of that, right? I've seen uncles get healed of drastic heart issues. I've seen... Um, I've seen money show up where it shouldn't appear. I've seen plans happen consecutively where things are confirmed and confirmed again. Like we are a group of signs and wonders, but I've also seen husbands die this year of COVID that are 32 years old or whatever. I've seen kids that are 16 die in car crashes. I've seen cancer go and then relapse and then come again and take people under. I don't know where to live in that. And everything in me wants to either demand or diminish the need, but Jesus gives me permission to do neither of those things. I have to keep asking is what he says. So I come to the table, and of all these things, the thing that I'm most ashamed of is I don't want to pray something in front of my kids and have God not come through. Isn't that what I'm really afraid of? I don't want, to, I don't want my heart to get deferred by my own hope, and I don't want my kids to see it either. And so we got somebody that we're praying for. Her name is Emily. She has a 2% chance to live. She has two or three kids, and she's my age. 2% chance to live. We told Ollie, this is it. If there's 100 marbles, there's only two chances that we're going to live. What do we got to do? And Alec, he's 10, you know what he says? He says, we're going to pray. And he didn't put up a speech. He said, I'm glad that dad's a great preacher. I hope he preaches good on Sunday. And I hope Ollie has a good birthday. And I pray that Emily gets better. And that's all that's expected. That we would ask. Ask, not demand, not diminish, not run, not hide, not manipulate, but to ask, to show up continually persistent vulnerability with shameless audacity. That is the language God has taught us to connect with him, and we will not have connection with him if we don't engage him that way. So Jesus, he asked this cruel question to this old crippled man at the pool of Bethesda who's been sitting there for 38 years. He can't even move. Jesus comes up to this homeless guy. He's broken and contrite and can't move himself to the swirling waters to go get healed. And comes to this guy, looks him in the face and says, do you want to get well? What are you, crazy? You're going to tell this guy, this guy's been sitting here for 38 years and he's like moving his elbows to try and get to the pool. Do you want to get well? Apparently, yes. Jesus asked the man if he wants to get well because he wants to hear him say it. And he needs, the man needs to hear himself say it. And he's asking you to pray for daily bread, not because he's not feeding you, because he knows there's something worse than no bread. It's spoiled bread. It's a life without intimacy. There's only so many more meals that you're going to get and so many more job promotions and so many more doors that are going to be opening to you. And he's going to open them no matter what you do, right? But the difference between you asking and not asking of demanding or deferring is the difference, not because if you're going to get fed, but whether you're not going to know him in the process, where you're going to get the daily bread or the Jesus bread. And that's the distance. And we cannot afford to not be askers. We have to ask. And so he would say to you like, I know Uncle Larry has a bum knee and I know that you want the, you know, Chicago Bulls to win or whatever it is that you want to happen. But once you get through all that, then let's talk about what's really going on. If you want a baby, then ask him. If you're scared and you don't want a divorce, then you got to ask him. If you want justice, 
for minorities in this country, then you got to ask him. You got to ask him. This is what he's saying. You got to ask him. There's no shortcut to asking. It's painful. It hurts to ask because you can risk rejection, but you got to ask. And God can take all kinds of emotions. You read Psalms 100 and 150, there's all kinds of emotions. You know what there isn't? None of in the book of Psalms? Silence. He could take any number of those emotions, but he cannot take your silence because silence always leads to spoiled bread. Silence always leads to spoiled bread. And so the asking, the asking is sometimes we get the stuff, but all the time we get the spirit. All the time we are being made new and all things are being made new um, on our behalf that we would be called and conformed to, to Christ Jesus. So this is the question, and I just challenge you, you know, with your prayer partner or next time somebody asks you how you're doing or next time that it comes up in small group and somebody says, what are we praying for today? What do we need? I want you to tell them because Jesus needs to hear you say it and your friends need to hear you say it and you need to hear yourself say it. And however the answer is responded, if it's a yes or if it's a no and it's a, it's a later or whatever it is, you still have to say it and there's no shortcut around saying it. And so these are the reflection questions. I'll, uh, I'll actually call Timothy up as, as we respond in worship, but I just want you to genuinely think about these in your seat for the next coffee that you have, for the next interaction that you have. But what is the need spiritually? There should never be a time when there's no prayer request. That's impossible. There's never a time that I'm going to come to Kyra and say, hey, is there anything you need? And she's going to be like, no. She's going to be like, you know what? We need to fix this. We need to do that. Like, there's always a need. You need wisdom. You need, you need the wisdom to know that you need wisdom. You need revelation. You need energy. What is it that you need? You need to name that thing and qualify the thing and speak it out before the Lord. What is it physically that you need? Are you sleeping well? Are you, are you, are you stressed? Do you, um, uh, do, do you have uh, unresolved issues with your neighbor, et cetera, emotionally? What are, the, what are the needs that come to mind to talk about the things that are actually at the table rather than the things that you're distracted with away from you? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.